All right, so you don't have to have led the lifestyle, the leisurely lifestyle of a Oxford graduate student to be able to structure your days around the twin pleasures of the daily politics at midday and news night just before bed, um, to know that the government is planning to invest £42.6 billion in a high-speed railroad project which connects London to cities in the north, Birmingham, and the cities at the heart of the so-called industrial powerhouse of the north, Manchester and Leeds. I don't know if this works, does it? Oh, there we are. Um, so there's the, there's the proposed route. That figure, £42.6 billion, um, seem, well, it is the latest in a long line of revised estimates. Uh, it seems about as good as any to me. Um, these estimates are pinned to such astronomical heights um, that they are to most people, and certainly uh, to me, um, virtually meaningless. Um, nevertheless, the government, supported by the current opposition, um, clearly has good reasons for supporting this uh, network. And anyone who like me, has had the less-than-utopian experience of sitting on a delayed 1747 out of Houston um, between screaming children, uh, drunken football fans and expansive businessmen as the train slowly um, chugs its way um, along the West Coast mainline before finally decamping its passengers uh, who'd originally been intending to go to Manchester in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, well, you'd certainly uh, be grateful for that route, I think. Um, and the advantages of HS2 do seem to be uh, many and persuasive. The reduction in journey times probably being only the most immediately relevant to most people in this room. On top of that, uh, HS2 will boost regional and national economies, uh, relieve the nation's carbon footprint, provide employment across various sectors, um, and at least according to Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg in a fit of unbridled optimism, it will heal the north-south divide as those forgotten powerhouses of the north of England are finally brought back into the fold of national economic significance. So what could possibly be the problem? Well, clearly not everyone is convinced by the plan. And I've just got on the screen some sort of common objections um, you often see. Um, so the first is that HS2 is perceived as uh, by some as benefiting only large urban areas. In other words, only the towns and cities at the ends of the route, uh, not the villages, hamlets and countryside it passes through. Sure, it might help big businesses to grow, but does it help a local farmer, a local shopkeeper? Um, do they feel the benefits? A second criticism we often, we often hear um, is aesthetic or environmental. Um, and indeed, um, one of the repeated criticisms of HS2 is that the height of the track at some places 9 or 10 metres above surrounding countryside or fields is an eyesore to say nothing of the uh, noise pollution that these um, behemoths will bring in their wake. Um, and finally, there are those who argue, um, not altogether unreasonably, you might think, that uh, £42.6 billion could be better spent on projects more worthwhile than cutting three quarters of an hour off a journey from Manchester to London. Might there not be other, more direct benefits um, that such an investment could bring? How about schools, hospitals, you know, even something as prosaic as a local bus service? Um, well, you might not be convinced by those arguments. You might be able to think of many others. That doesn't really matter. But just, um, just hold them in your mind as we think what on earth George Eliot's novel Middlemarch um, has to do with HS2. Uh, Eliot wrote Middlemarch uh, in the late 1860s, early 1870s, uh, publishing it periodically uh, before releasing a one-volume edition 
1874. However, it is set back in time 30 years, um, just in the 1830s, just before the passage of the first um, Great Reform Bill in 1832, and at a time when uh, the railroad enterprise was just beginning to gain steam. No, no one got that pun, but OK. Uh, yeah. um, the opening of the Stockton and Darlington Railway in 1825 um, soon led to railway mania in Britain, as entrepreneurs like George Hudson, the, the so-called self-styled railway king, um, began to make a killing from stocks and shares investments. The growth of the railways continued with fervour until the financial crisis of 1847. Given the potential of railroads in this period, it's no surprise that Victorian writers turned to it as a trope in their droves. And in the novel Middlemarch, Elliot depicts the la uh, George Eliot depicts the uh, visit of some land surveyors to a small hamlet called Frick. It's alongside this hamlet that um, a new railway will run. The people of Frick have clearly been left behind by the technologies of modernity. And then sp they spend their days in the heavy-shouldered labour that comes with the territory of stone pits. No one's consulted the residents of Frick about railroad construction, but they are against it, the narrator tells us, only because of an absence as to any precise ideas as to what railways actually are. Nevertheless, they are able to articulate three objections against the planned route, which roughly correspond to the three I outlined before. Certainly, the old wagoner, Hiram Ford, is sceptical about a project which he believes has been imposed from a capital which is inherently uh, hostile to the provincial way of life. Commenting on the invasion of railroad people to the otherwise uneventful life of Frick, Hiram comments, why, they're London chaps, I reckon. And the narrator immediately justifies this um, in terms of Hiram's parochial notion of London as the centre of hostility to the country. The potential of the railways then seems to do nothing to allay this dim notion, and indeed much to exacerbate it. Meanwhile, the Solomon, uh, the, I'm sorry, meanwhile the farmer, Solomon Featherston, um, regrets that the country has seen its best days, as it's being overrun with these fellows tramping left and right and wanting to cut it into railways. The traditional, apparently idyllic setting of Lowick, which is the parish of which this hamlet Frick is a constituent part, um, this was a place where cattle had, I'm quoting Eliot, cattle had hitherto grazed in peace and unbroken astonishment. And this is something that the farmer now has cause, he thinks, to mourn. And finally, one Timothy Cooper, a character who appears only once in the whole novel, opines that railways do not make economic sense for the people of Frick. The railways will only leave the poor man further behind. This is the big Phillips world, this is. Sure, they may help the landed elite or burgeoning capitalist class, but they'll only leave the, the poor man further behind. There may well be better ways to spend this money. Eliot herself is clearly sympathetic to these arguments, um, but Middlemarch and many of her, almost all of her other novels, set back in time 40 years, does offer little prospect of stemming the tide of progress. By 1874, when she's completed Middlemarch, if we were to switch metaphors, we could say that the ship had already sailed on railway construction. Um, certainly, as a cosmopolitan author whose urban lifestyle could not be more distinct from that of these labouring people, Hiram Ford and Timothy Cooper, um, as a cosmopolitan author, she does evince a strong belief in the inevitability of progress in general, I suppose, and uh, railway construction in particular. Her ca a character, Caleb Garth, is right, as he usually is, when he says, Now, my lads, you can't hinder the railroad. 
it will be made whether you like it or no. So I hope I've shown that um, Middlemarch is relevant to a discussion of HS2 insofar as it responds to developments in infrastructure that are analogous to those um, going on today. But what can she actually, or what can George Eliot actually teach us, or teach the modern world, about how to negotiate large infrastructural projects? Well, many things of which two spring to mind. Um, the first is that developers have a duty to be honest and clear in their articulation of the consequences of railway construction. A repeated criticism of HS2 and one which was recently voiced by the MP Jeremy Wright in the Commons Committee on HS2 um, was that information from, developers and local information from developers to local residents was far too sparse. If Elliot seems to present ignorance in a humorous light, this idea that they're only against the railway because they don't know anything about it, um, then it is incumbent upon those with knowledge to disseminate it with relative dispassion. This is not to make the mistake of Caleb Garth, who assumes that disagreement with the railway project is the same as ignorance of it, as if to say, if only these poor people were enlightened, they'd surely realise the railway's a good thing. But it is to say that clear communication and dialogue are needed to demystify the infrastructure project and enable people to make judgments about it precisely on the basis of what's lacking here, precise ideas. The second, and I think probably more important thing Eliot can teach us, is about the role, um, if not the primacy, of feelings um, when making decisions about infrastructure. When Caleb Garth tries to explain the merits of the railway to Timothy Cooper, the latter remains unconvinced, unamenable, we might say, to reason. Indeed, the narrator comments facetiously that, that it was almost as if this wiry old labourer, illiterate, who lives with his savings in a stocking foot, had been unacquainted with the age of reason and the rights of man. Caleb's problem is formulated like this. Caleb was in a difficulty known to any person attempting in dark times and unassisted by miracle to reason with rustics who are in possession of an undeniable truth which they know through a hard process of feeling and they can let it fall like a giant's club on your neatly carved argument for a social benefit which they do not feel. In other words, the discussion about railways must consider not only a dispassionate assessment of their social utility, but also the feelings they engender in the lives of those affected by them. It seems to me the ambiguity of the word feel here, straddling as it does the words of emotion, to feel something in your heart, and practicality, to feel something in your hands, um, come into play here. Timothy Cooper has a visceral reaction against the railroad, uh, which will not allow Caleb's argument to prevail upon him. In other words, this is a bad thing. He doesn't, he doesn't have a reasoned argument behind that. He just feels it. But he's also a man of the soil, a labourer. He keeps his money in a stocking foot as a concrete object um, that's reassuring to touch. We, of course, don't do that. Most of us don't see our money. Some of us see it even less than others. Um, but, you know, we, keep it, we just see it as a figure on, on, on the screen. The figure I mentioned at the start of this talk, £42.6 billion, represents the highest level of abstraction in this regard. Money for us moderns is just a metaphor. You know, £10 is not really, a £10 note's not really worth anything. It's just a promise we have in lieu of the thing we actually want to have. Um, such that unless the figure, £42.6 can be translated into tangible benefits, and unless it can be seen, seen to do so, then Timothy Cooper will be vindicated in his belief that the railways only leave the poor man further behind. 
It's not much use having £42.6 billion unless some of it uh, is in your pocket. So feeling so long jettisoned, I think, out of political discourse, um, at least professional political discourse, needs to find its place there once again. And on this point, I do not think that Eliot has developed terribly far from a position she articulated in her earliest novel, Adam Bede, uh, whose main protagonist argued that feeling is a sort of knowledge. It may not, of course, be the only form of knowledge, but it does perhaps, I think, uh, deserve a far greater role in political life and decision-making. Thank you. Mm-hmm.